It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So Florida may pass a law banning dogs from riding with their owners in the car and sticking their heads out the car window. Don't dogs have rights? Could the dogs get together and hire a lawyer and file a suit and saying we love to do this? <laughs> do, do lawmakers have nothing else to worry about but this? Well, it turns out it's just a bill that's been introduced and it's actually supposed to help the dogs because they could get stuff in their eyes and irritated and it's dangerous for them and blah, blah, blah. You know, talk about the heavy hand of government. I think owners can make that decision. Uh, and who doesn't like, you know, when you're riding around seeing some golden retriever or Boston Terrier or Cocker Spaniel, you know, enjoying the wind as the car goes down. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so I've been following Donald Trump on True Social. I got a series of items here. And then there's a more serious story we'll get to later. Um, you know, Nikki Haley in, in her, you know, anybody who's old is really a bad presidential choice uh, announcement talked about competency tests. So Trump jumps on this as anybody running for president should agree to take a full and complete mental competency test. Um, but to a somewhat lesser extent, agree to a test that would prove you are physically capable of doing the job. Being an outstanding president requires great mental acuity and physical stamina. If you don't have those traits, you probably won't succeed. Remember when Chris Wallace interviewed Donald Trump and he had taken an IQ test of something that was the equivalent. And Trump was sort of bragging like, you know, I, you know, I, you have to remember five words, man, TV, camera, dog, you know. And he says, yeah, but and Chris Wallace came back and said, yeah, but, you know, they show a picture of an elephant and you have to say, is that an elephant? In other words, this was not the most arduous test. Not that I think there should be a test. Okay, here's another Trump uh, truth. In writer Selena Zito's fake news puff piece about DeSantis, you think he might be a little sensitive about DeSantis, which supposedly appeared, I don't understand the supposedly part, in the dying New York Post, which is way down in readership, just like Fox News is way down in ratings. Neither of those things are true, by the way. I just want to give you a little Insta fact check. Why doesn't she mention that he, DeSantis, wants to cut Social Security and Medicare? I don't know that that's true. Loves losers like Jeb Bush, Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and is getting clobbered in the polls by me. Well, there have been a number of polls lately showing Trump with a very substantial lead, but it's early. Oh, DeSantis is a rhino who is trying to hide his past. I don't read the New York Post anymore. It's become fake news, just like Fox and Wall Street Journal. Okay, I, I don't buy that. I think he reads the New York Post every day. It used to have this thing where it's like, I don't watch Morning Joe. And then somehow, whenever a, a guest or Joe or Meeker would say something he didn't like, he'd be tweeting about it. Uh, but I've heard that they've said this, you know, like he didn't watch. Okay, all right. Uh, in a slightly more serious vein, uh, the former president put out a video yesterday with a seven-point plan to end crime. And I think it's a good thing when he talks about issues and gets into the substance of uh, a potential second term. But there's one thing, or at least a couple things in here, that are just not true. He starts out on Joe Biden's watch. Violent crime has skyrocketed. Communities are less safe. You know, 
I don't think crime has skyrocketed. I think crime is a serious problem. But then you get to this part. As he, meaning Biden, defunded, defamed, and dismantled police forces. Um, Okay, Joe Biden has never called for defunding the police, even when that was a hot topic in the 2020 campaign uh, with the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't believe he's defamed the police. And dismantling, first of all, those are, although federal money does go to local police departments, those are state and local decisions. And there's no evidence that Biden has done that either. So, in fact, oh, here's a, here's a statistic uh, from 2021, and, you know, in the wake of the horrible George Floyd murder. Uh, police budgets uh, reduced by 5.2%, but as a share of general expenditures rose from 13.6 to 13.7. So I don't know that the idea that police are being widely... Uh, cut, but certainly Joe Biden is someone who has never, and he was asked that in debates and interviews, never, never went into the defunding thing, which was, by the way, one of the most idiotic, politically stupid things anybody has ever said in any political party. Just so you know my thoughts on the matter. Uh, the Mormon Church has been fined $5 million by the SEC. This is really quite a thing. Um, SEC yesterday charging and I guess settling the case with this fine that the church hid its investments behind multiple shell companies for a period ranging from 1997 to 2019. And what the SEC is alleging is that the extent of the church's um, nest egg or investments or you know the, the pot of gold it was sitting on had reached $32 billion dollars. What? And in one of the stories I saw, it said, well, the church leaders didn't want this out because they were afraid people wouldn't donate. Yeah, I could see that. I I mean, I'm certainly not opposed to the Mormon church raising as much money as it can, but to hide that behind shell companies that have to pay this huge fine, not a good look. A follow-up to the story yesterday about James O'Keefe leaving Project Veritas, which was so controversial, and he, of course, very controversial, and he, in effect, forced out by a revolt among a good chunk of the staff who said he was a horrible boss. Well, the Washington Post has a follow-up scooplet saying that the board of directors told the staff, and this is one of the reasons the argument was that O'Keefe had to go, that O'Keefe was endangering the group's nonprofit status. In a memo to employees, the Post got the piece of paper. The board warned, there is no Project Veritas without the IRS because donors donate to our organization in part because of the tax deduction available to the donor. Washington Post saying if the tax deduction, continuing to quote the memo, tax deduction no longer available, the board members warn the organization folds and with it go our employees. And then gets into certain things that he has done, certain expenses that would be seen as political. And when you're what's known in the uh, IRS tax code as a 501c3, you're said to be a nonprofit. People can take a tax deduction for what they donate to you, but you can't engage in blatantly political activity. Now, that's often a fine line that gets uh, fought about. All right, let's go to number one. And this is the Trump story I alluded to. So you probably know, or at least are somewhat aware, that there was this special grand jury in Georgia and that the Fulton County District Attorney, Atlanta area, you know, has been 
contemplating whether or not to bring indictments in a case that would only involve Georgia. Well, now the forewoman of the jury has been going around giving interviews. This is extraordinary. I mean, I am sure certain members of certain juries spoke perhaps off the record or on background once the term of the grand jury has expired. If you do it while the grand jury is still seated, um, that's a federal offense on the part of the jury member. Um, and in these interviews, the woman Emily Coors, K-O-H-R-S, has made it pretty clear, speaking in not-so-coded language, that she expects Donald Trump to be indicted. I don't know if that's true, but, but we'll get to more of it in a minute. She's asked uh, by the New York Times, it is not a short list, she said, of those the, the Georgia grand jury recommended multiple indictments. By the way, there now has to be a, 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 an actual regular grand jury in which the district attorney would or would not follow these recommendations. Um, so she was asked, well, uh, you know, who, who do you have in mind? Could his initials be DJT? She said, you're not going to be shocked. It's not rocket science. You won't be too surprised. And even goes on to say, uh, you know, there's, uh, I can, I will tell you that if the judge releases the recommendations, it's not going to be some giant plot twist. You probably have a fair idea of what may be in there. I'm trying very hard to say that delicately. Well, she ain't saying it that delicately. She's basically saying Trump's on the list. This, of course, is the state where the then president made the famous phone call to Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger saying, uh, I need you to find 11,780 votes, or one more than we have, to try to overturn his loss in Georgia. And I don't know what the underpinning legal argument would be, but it's kind of outrageous that this woman, Emily Kors, is just shooting off her mouth and getting her 15 seconds of fame. So she also spoke to CNN, and then in a later CNN segment, Anderson Cooper, to his credit, was talking to his legal analyst, Eli Honig, about this sort of dance where she kind of strongly hints that it's Trump, but she won't quite say so, but you won't be surprised. It's not some great plot twist. And um, so in the CNN interview, she says, I really don't want to share something the judge made a conscious decision not to share. Um, we definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And then she goes to the no major plot twist. And Anderson Cooper says, first of all, why is this person talking on TV? I do not understand. Because she's clearly enjoying herself, but I mean, is this responsible? She was the foreperson of the grand jury. And Eli Honig said, this is a horrible idea. I guarantee you that prosecutors are wincing watching her go on like this. And Cooper says, I was wincing just watching her eagerness to, like, hint that stuff. It's painful, said Hogan, uh, Honig. Excuse me. Very serious prospect here. We're talking about indicting any person. You're talking about potentially taking away that person's liberty. We're talking about potentially a former president for the first time in the history of this nation. She does not seem to be taking that seriously. And Honig goes on to say, it's a prosecutor's nightmare. Mark my words. Donald Trump's team is going to make a motion. If there is an indictment, to dismiss that indictment, based on grand jury impropriety, although this would not be the grand jury that would actually return the indictment. So basically they're saying, like, she's mucking up the case. Now, 
you could say, okay, well, why does CNN put her on? Well, by the time CNN interviewed her and NBC, uh, she had already spoken first to the AP and then to the New York Times. Um, journalists are trying to do their job. I think some of them were probably surprised at how far she was willing to go. Um, but, you know, we have a system in this country that, and by the way, Trump was never interviewed by this special grand jury. They may have talked about him a lot. So some of these charges, I think a couple of them clearly are going to be perjury, but they cannot be perjury against Donald Trump because he was not given an opportunity or his lawyers were not given an opportunity to talk on his behalf. So we know he's not going to be charged with perjury. But in any event, you know, the, the, this is set up to protect the rights of defendants so that if they are not charged, their reputations are not ruined, they're not blackened, they're not unfairly fairly smeared. And I guess, you know, journalists feel like, well, it's our job to get the facts, and if somebody wants to talk, that person can talk. But this is kind of a clown show. All right, number two, President Biden, uh, finishing up the trip to Poland, gave a uh, pretty forceful speech yesterday. This, of course, had, that was, of course, a day after he walked the streets of Kiev with Vladimir Zelensky. And the actual anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the invasion by Russia is uh, two days from now. So Biden had this rhetorical uh, setup where he said, you know, I've just come back from Kiev, and Kiev stands strong. Kiev stands tall. Kiev is free. And he went on to say, uh, autocrats only understand one word, no. Um, the president using the speech to repeat what his vice president said at that Munich conference, accusing Russia of crimes against humanity, such as, quote, targeting civilians with death, such as using rape as, quote, a weapon of war, stealing Ukrainian children, targeting train stations, maternity wards, hospitals, schools, orphanages. This was not a mild, discursive speech. This was a very aggressive speech. And he talked a little bit because, because Putin had spoken earlier that day, and it was not supposed to be a response to Putin, but in this one respect it was. He said that, first of all, the West was not planning to attack Russia, so this was completely a war of choice, a bloody invasion of choice by the Kremlin. And Biden said, Putin doubts our staying power. And he went on to say, we will not tire. He's saying, you know, just because this war has dragged on for a year and may drag on for years to come, and this could get increasingly controversial here in the U.S., the president of the United States is saying, we will not give in. Our NATO allies are all agreed. And then he went on to say, if Russia goes home, the war's over. If Ukraine loses, it's wiped off the map. And there's also this question now of, is, are the Russians going to get back in from China? I read that uh, there's supposed to be a meeting between Putin and Xi. I don't think China loves this war. I think China would prefer that the Russians not have done it. But I also think it likes the idea of an alliance with Russia. So I don't know where that comes out. So I think it's fair to say that the president of the United States made a very strong showing with his visit to Ukraine, and to Poland. And there's a lot of bipartisan support for what he said and what he did. And he showed a lot of resolve. And it doesn't. And he, the president himself said, dark days may be ahead. 
you know, I mean, you, although, for, although Russia has lost something on the order of 200,000 soldiers and revealed itself to be a third-rate military, still has a lot of nuclear weapons, as we talked about yesterday. And um, Biden knows, and Zelensky knows, that he's going to lose a lot of soldiers. In fact, Zelensky, I read, just uh, toughened the penalties for anybody who tries to desert or dodge the draft. Because obviously, you know, as in any society, not everybody wants to go. But this is a fight for the country's survival. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Okay, the, the story I want to read to you now as part of this segment is in Politico. And I think it's kind of clickbait, and I think it's sort of irresponsible. But at least it's the lead story, so that's telegraphing a message. And the headline is, Joe may not run, and top Dems are quietly preparing. Now, doesn't that send a signal to you, particularly when the headline's in large type at uh, the top of the page, that there's been some new developments here? And you need to read this story and find out what's going on and who's doing the jockeying? Well, it turns out it's just chatter. I mean, it's basically what it is. Joe Biden's closest advisors have spent months preparing him for him to formally announce his re-election campaign. But with the president still not ready to make the plunge, a sense of doubt is creeping into conversations around 2024. What if he decides not to? So what if he decides not to creeping into conversations does not, in my humble opinion, warrant a banner headline, Joe may not run. They're just talking to people around Biden who are, you know, saying, well, he's not, he hasn't gotten in yet, which we knew. Biden's past decisions around seeking the presidency have been protracted, painstaking affairs. Um, his timetable originally was to launch in February. Now his advisors are coalescing around April. Let me just stop right there. So what? So what if he announces in April? He's the president of the United States. He's the incumbent. He's the person who anybody else, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, you name it, has to beat to win the White House. So in my view, he could announce next November. You know, there used to be one-year campaigns, not two-year campaigns. Uh, it's easier to ramp up, and then they're having meetings. I guess we're going to get to this in a second to ramp up when you're the incumbent, when you already have, a, you can fly around on Air Force One. And you can, as Biden will spend the next six months doing, you know, go to different places and announce federal grants, and mainly from the infrastructure bill, but maybe others as well. Oh, but April, even that target is less than definitive. People in the president's orbit say there is no hard deadline or formal process in place for arriving at a launch date decision, according to four people familiar with the president's thinking, a final call has been pushed aside as real-world events intervene. His cloak and dagger trip to Kiev over the holiday weekend took meticulous planning. Uh, now is seen as providing him with more runway to turn back to domestic politics. And then you get to this paragraph. While the belief among nearly everyone in Biden's orbit is that he'll ultimately give the all-clear... Okay, so if you have a better headline that says Joe may not run, and then in the, you know, 10th paragraph, you say, well, everybody around him thinks he's going to run. 
Haven't you undercut the premise of the piece? I mean, I'm really stuck on this fact that, you know, if it had been a piece lower down on the page with a slightly less provocative headline, I wouldn't have any problem with it. You know, it's typical Politico or, you know, the New York Times or Washington Post or, or Huffington Post or National Review or anybody else could do a piece by talking to people in Biden's circles. Ah, but however, this has resulted in an awkward deep freeze, and now Governors J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, Gavin Newsom of California, and Phil Murphy of New Jersey have taken steps that could be seen as aimed at keeping the door cracked, open that is, if Biden bows out, although they want plausible deniability. So now uh, people are calling Biden Hamlet on the Christina River, that's in Delaware, Warily Biden his time as he ponders the particulars of his final campaign. Um, again, the conventional wisdom is that there's no way he passes on 2024. And inertia has set in, said one Biden confident. It's not that he won't run. And the assumption is that he will. But nothing is decided. Okay, which we already know before we started reading this piece. And then it goes into, you know, they're planning to set up a pack and, and this kind of thing. Um, finally, finally, and this reads to me differently than I think the author is intended, to the surprise of some Biden allies, they say he has talked only sparingly about a possible campaign. Three people with familiar with the conversation said his daily focus remains the job itself. So you're telling me that he's concentrating on doing the duties of the president of the United States and not obsessing on the campaign in which he almost definitely will run? Isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't you want your president concentrating on the job as opposed to 2024 politics? Uh, First Lady Jill Biden is on board. She said that a while ago. And then it's like, well, if he didn't run, it would be a bombshell like when Lyndon Johnson, you know, halted or did a partial bombing halt in Vietnam. And um, announced he wasn't running for another term. I remember watching that in my parents' living room. 1968. But I don't see that happening here. Barring some unexpected health or other development. Story number three. House Democrats said to be furious with Speaker Kevin McCarthy for giving Fox's Tucker Carlson exclusive access to tens of thousands of hours of footage from the Capitol riot on January 6th. I guess this was first reported by Axios. Fox News has confirmed it. Tucker Carlson talked about it on his show. 41,000 hours of surveillance tapes from the day that Trump supporters laid siege to the Capitol. And people who are critical of this saying, well, you know, Tucker Carlson, he's kind of downplayed the riot and he's going to use this for his own purposes. And just there were a whole bunch of people quoted in various stories as going... I think the technical term would be bonkers over this. Uh, Jamie Raskin, who was a member of the January 6th committee, an astounding ethical collapse on Kevin McCarthy's part. What security precautions were taken to keep this from becoming a roadmap for 2024 insurrection? Why isn't it available to all media and public? Um, And um, it goes on. Benny Thompson, of course, the Democratic chairman of the January 6th committee, um, criticizing the decision, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, criticizing the decision. So here's my thought. It might've been better for Kevin McCarthy to give it to everybody, 
But let me just throw in one contrary point of view. Virtually everything the January 6th committee did, and I talked about this endlessly, because I didn't understand it from the committee's own point of view, was leaked in advance. They wouldn't just have a hearing and have the bombshells drop. There would be stories either the day before or the morning of the hearing in which everything that was going to happen would be laid out, which I always thought detracted from the news value of the hearing itself. But those were authorized leaks given to the likes of the New York Times, CNN, the Washington Post, outfits that certainly could be described as left-leaning and having an animus toward Donald Trump. But nobody makes an issue of that because, oh, that's okay. I mean, these are big news organizations. We trust them. Uh, So what if they got the leaks in advance? But if the leak goes to somebody on the conservative side, oh, my God, this is the most horrible thing that's ever happened. I'm just pointing out a different point of view uh, uh, having to do with the art of the leak. And unlike in the case of these all the January 6th committee leaks, they're not making any bones about it. I mean, McCarthy has confirmed it publicly. Tucker has confirmed it publicly. It's all being done out in the open. So I just want to provide that. We'll see what actually happens, and we'll talk about it then. I just want to slip in here what's been happening with Pete Buttigieg, because he is taking a lot of heat, and rightly so in my view, over the terrible train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, Toxic chemicals getting into the water. People worried about the safety of drinking water. And he didn't even talk about it for a week. He's the Secretary of Transportation, and this was a rail accident. And so I understand you don't go flying in the next day and interfere with the investigation or the rescue efforts. I also understand that EPA takes the lead because it's an environmental disaster. But in an interview... Judge appeared to admit that he had screwed it up. He said um, he could have been more prompt in his response to the train derailment. And then he's, he's going to go visit there. But when? Like, what's the point of talking about it? Just go. You know, uh, a guy who wanted to be president, who probably still wants to be president, let this develop into a national story, should have gotten his butt there, on the theory that it is important for, I mean, I, nobody even knows who the head of the EPA is in this administration, but people know who Pete Buttigieg is. He's the most prominent, probably, and articulate member of the cabinet. He should have already been there, and I don't know, what is he waiting for now? And then you just give uh, more days for there to be a drumbeat about, you know, what were you doing? But here's another interesting twist. Uh, Marco Rubio wrote a letter to Biden last week. Oh, calling for Buttigieg's resignation because he was deflecting accountability for the safety of our nation's rail system. Okay, that's a fair shot for a Republican senator to take. But Buttigieg came back and said this. We heard from Senator Rubio last week, who had some pretty strong words about this incident. I can't help but notice the last time this agency heard from him on rail regulation, which was the fall of 2021, was his signature being on a letter that was pretty obviously drafted by industry calling on us to weaken our practices around track inspection. Okay? So senators who are like, oh, no, no, we can't do this because the industry has to have a freer hand, and Rubio signs this, then there's an accident, and it turns out that 
um, the rail company involved uh, has been fighting tougher regulation. I think it's a little embarrassing, and I think that was a pretty good rejoinder on Pete's part. Number four, um, number four, Steve Krakauer, who is a pretty frequent guest on Media Buzz, has a book coming out. The book is called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. And I may as well do a little plug here. Uh, I'm going to interview him in a few days, and that will be on this coming Sunday's Media Buzz. And there's a lot in this book. He interviewed a lot of people. uh, But here's something that uh, made some news having to do with, I'm sure you all recall, uh, when the New York Times published the Tom Cotton op-ed piece about, you know, calling for sending in the troops to cities that were hit by riots. And there was this huge internal staff revolt that ended up in the firing of editorial page editor James Bennett. Originally, he had been praised by his publisher, A.G. Salzberger, for running the Senator Cotton piece. Whether people agreed with it or not, I mean, it was an online piece. And he ended up losing his job over it because the Times caved. Well, what is in the Krakauer book, again called Uncovered, and I'm not acting as his PR agent here, is he has some reporting showing that Times staffer Sean McCreesh, who has since moved on to New York Magazine, um, saw this as a, as a bloodthirsty side of his colleagues. McCreesh said that Charlie Warzel, a tech writer for the Times who was white, started to cry at one of these meetings because, quote, quote, none of his friends wanted to talk to him anymore because he worked for this horrible, evil newspaper that would print this op-ed. What? Has anybody heard of free speech? Did it really change the course of human history that the Times ran an online-only op-ed by a Republican senator who had a different view than the woke staffers at the NYT? It was just so bizarre what was happening, said McCreesh. McCreesh telling Krakauer that the Times leadership completely lost their nerve in the face of, quote, angry, backbiting staffers, including some that Bennett had brought to the Times. McCree said he was so effing freaked out by the mob and said the scene was like a murder. There was this giant communal Slack chat for the whole company that became this sort of digital gallows, uh, McCree says in this interview, and all these angry backbiting staffers were gathering there and demanding that heads roll. And these were sort of the weird tech and audio staffers um, and people who wrote for the arts and leisure section and the style section and the New York Times Magazine. In other words, there was no one who was actually out there covering the protests or the riots or the politics. It was just a bunch of, these, these are all direct quote folks, Twitter brain crazies kind of running wild on Slack. And the leadership was so horrified by what was happening, they just completely lost their nerve. And the worst was that a lot of people who were stabbing James, James Bennett, in the front, were, like, were the ones that he hired and brought to the newspaper. It was like Caesar on the floor of the Roman Senate or something. Just this sort of horrible moment. I remember closing my laptop and pouring a huge glass of wine, even though it was like noon, because I was so effing freaked out. Well, that is a very revealing and telling peak of what was going on behind the scenes as this staff revolt in the newsroom, mostly, he says, this guy McCree says by people who had no experience covering politics or covering riots or getting out there in the streets 
And they were just pissed off. And that cost James Bennett his job. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five. Why is everybody pissed off at Netflix? Well, I'm not pissed off at Netflix, but there's a piece in The Atlantic that says there's a bit of an uproar among Netflix users because it's starting to crack down on password sharing. Now, a Netflix account had previously offered a soft product, you know, whereas the hard product is the movies and TV shows and documentaries themselves. The soft product is, you know, you can share it with your family. And obviously some people shared it with their friends and Netflix didn't really care. But now Netflix is strapped for cash. And so it's cracking down. And suddenly it seems to imply that you might have been a cheat for ever getting that soft product in the first place. And you're being scolded. So for years, Netflix exploited a sense of intimacy, says this piece in The Atlantic, as a marketing strategy once actually tweeting, love is sharing a password. Because, you know, um, you could, you know, you also can pay money for a family account in which other members of your family get to use the password perfectly legally. But then what happens if one of your kids moves out and, and goes to college? Is it really a big deal that that person who's a close member of your family could continue to do this? But the appeal of Netflix, according to this piece, you may agree, you may disagree, and other streaming services, is that it started encouraging users to set up separate profiles, but it created this kind of affinity. You would launch the the software, I should say, on your TV or on your phone, and you could see that mom and dad and Caitlin and Buzz, making up these names, These profiles could be customized with icons, allowing users the ability to signal something about their sense of self. And you would talk to them about it. Everybody would watch the same thing. So when Netflix decided this amounted to freeloading, it should have known its customers would object viscerally, not just because they didn't want to pay for multiple accounts, although that's probably also true. Netflix had made sharing part of the soft product, a tiny, subtle, intimate connection with the people you care about, all hate-watching, Emily and Paris together. And I just finished watching it and I, I didn't hate watch it. I think parts of it are silly, but it's also kind of fun. In a way, everything has become a soft product, The Atlantic says. The feeling of delight or hatred that you find on Facebook or YouTube is why you use social media, not just for the information. The convenience of reliable fast delivery is why you pay for Amazon Prime, not just access to products in boxes. The sense of community and affinity you get from sharing a Netflix account is a big part of why people use it instead of or in addition to Prime Video, HBO Max, being able to share an entertainment experience and then talk with your friends or family about Stranger Things or Glass Onion. Amazon Prime subscribers thought they were buying reliable two-day access to almost any consumer good, but... Nowadays, prime shipping might mean anything. Ships in two days or four or a week or who knows when. It's prime because Amazon is shipping it. And Uber is no longer necessarily easy to find, quick to arrive or cheap to ride, but merely available. And not always. (laughs) That leaves behind an emotional hurt, a sense of betrayal, rather than a rational one, a loss of value. It's a feeling you'd better get used to. Well, I don't know if Atlantic is kind of blowing this up and how many people are angry with Netflix, but it is true that Netflix kind of marketed itself as, 
you know, uh, one big happy family, and then you get your own icon, and people can see what you're watching or not watching. And it is true that times are tight now. Streaming is not as profitable as it used to be because there's so many competitors. And so that's the take in The Atlantic. Uh, I have given this zero thought until now, uh, but it did make me think about these things, whether it's Uber, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Netflix, in a somewhat different way. And I think that's what journalism is supposed to do. So go check on your account now. Don't do anything illegal. <laughs> um, have a great day. Thanks for sharing, in a very different sense, your time with me. When you subscribe to a podcast, even though you might be doing other things, uh, it's a different experience than sitting down and watching a TV show or you know, reading something on your Kindle. And that's why I'm always very grateful uh, for the numbers that we have been able to put up on this podcast. And this is the point where I say we will all see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.